welcome wherever you are, whether you're locked down or if you're enjoying the freedom of, uh, of work <laughs> somewhere in Australia. Episode 101 of The Professor and the Hack. Uh, I'm the Hack, Hugh Rimminson. With me, The Professor, PVO. Your record for predicting outcomes has, uh, again, proved to be peerless, uh, picking, I think, <laughs> New South Wales to win the final game and take a clean sweep of the state of origin. Uh, missed by that much, as they used to say, or get smart. It was really funny, actually, because I, um, I, I sort of, yeah, you know, I've embraced this whole kiss of death thing. But I, I, a number of times lately, including when Ash Barty was playing, I deliberately picked her opponent. I go against what I want to happen in the hope uh, that I can therefore get the outcome that I want, you know, or if I, or at least get a prediction right if it's not the outcome that I actually personally want. But then I thought last night, ah, oh, no, I'm just going to lean into what I actually think and want will happen and go for a Blues win. And then sure enough, Queensland find a way to win. But the funniest part, Hugh, I, you probably didn't notice this. I, I tweeted my acceptance of defeat uh, in my predictive skills about 10 minutes before the end of the game when it looked like Queensland had wrapped it up. And then New South Wales surged and almost pulled off a miraculous comeback. Uh, and I was just sitting there thinking, surely not, surely not. Yes, the fingertips of Kalen Ponga, I think, were probably the difference in the end. <laughs> Um, it goes to an issue which leads and segues neatly into politics because this is essentially the Scott Morrison defense over his vaccination rollout. And that is that it's easy to make predictions about the past. It's much more difficult to make accurate predictions about the future. And as he takes increasing heat for the slow vaccination delivery to Australian arms. Uh, he's now blaming ATAGI, the immunization advisor uh, body, for their advice, chopping and changing. And when he was asked by Sabra Lane on AM, going back, what would you do differently? And he said, predict the future better. Um, <laughs> because uh, I bow to no man in my willingness to give the prime minister, any prime minister, a good cuff around the ears if I think they've done the wrong thing. But some sympathy must surely be extended to anyone trying to predict the future. They, they, they essentially didn't back the right horse in sufficient number with Pfizer last year. I guess that's mm. what it came down to. Yeah, and and I mean I've written about this as well and spoken about it. I I think that some of the mistakes that they've made on that front are mistakes in hindsight, but they were understandable mistakes. Now there's been plenty. If listeners are looking to tear their hair out as they hear this, there have been plenty of botched manoeuvres and mistakes made uh, in a substantive sense as well as rhetorically in the way that they've managed uh, confidence around the rollout as well, which they should have done differently, not just with the benefit of hindsight. So let's be absolutely clear about that. But having said that, backing AstraZeneca was the smart play, not only because it was the tested technology at the time, not only because it was the great Oxford University that was running it, uh, but also because we had facilities capable of reproducing it ourselves. So it made sense for us to lean into that particular technology. The woman that was at the vanguard of the group, she was the person that had the runs on the board in terms of proven ability to develop vaccinations before. So that made sense to lean in heavily on AstraZeneca, who could have predicted not only that blood clotting would become an issue, but that then the management of that issue would become problematic as well. And that's part of something we can talk about. But then we also lent heavily into the UQ uh, vaccine, which nobody could really criticise a Prime Minister for doing because it's by Australian, it's a local product. Uh, that made sense, but of course it fell over because of some complications around giving false positives to HIV uh, as part of its process. 
And then we did buy millions of Pfizer as our third option, but it was only ever meant to be the third option. And suddenly it's had to become the first option. And because we did so well managing the pandemic compared to other nations, we that sort of put us to some extent at the back of the Pfizer queue, because then when we had to go searching for vaccines, uh, they didn't exactly look at us as a, as a needs-based case because we'd done so well. And to top it all off, and this is where we are now, despite having done so well and having had all those understandable errors along the way with hindsight, guess what? Now Greater Sydney is locked down, Melbourne may be next, uh, and we are actually having additional waves which create a need which will be serviced soon. This million a week is coming shortly, but it's not here right now, and that's why the Prime Minister's under the pump. And the economy's under the pump. I think that's the other thing. There's, there's you know, the suggestion from some economists that the lockdown, which has been extended another two weeks, there's a lot of advice suggesting it's going to have to go a lot longer than that. Some are saying Barnett, the Burnett Institute saying up to uh, three months mm, to eliminate well. completely this Delta strain, that this could pitch the country uh, back into negative growth for this quarter, at least, the potential, therefore, of the looming spectre of a potential recession, unless we get on top of this, um, if it goes on, you know, for the rest of the year and into next year, you have to hope that the lockdowns and the restrictions will have some effect in squashing out the virus by then. But, the, you know, the lack of, of vaccinations in arms is, is feeding into the sense that, uh, that we're far from out of it, that this is an economic as well as a health disaster. Yeah, it's absolutely an economic disaster, uh, every bit as much and potentially over time, if not more so than, than the health side of the disaster. I mean, that's been one of the interesting features for Australia during this pandemic versus the rest of the world. Relatively speaking, uh, the economic challenges and risks have been higher for us than the health risks uh, so far. Uh, now that can always change on a dime. Uh, but we thought we were through both sides of that uh, for a long time. Now, I still think we're through the worst of the health side of it because of the vaccine rollout, slow, botched or otherwise, we will get there. Uh, and there will be cases before then. And sadly, there will be deaths too. But they won't be anywhere near in the numbers that we've seen uh, during the course of the pandemic overseas, not even close. And I, I doubt that they'll be anywhere near the numbers that we even just saw in Victoria when it had the second wave uh, and aged care in particular was hit hard. So fingers crossed on, on that front. But the economy side of it, uh, I, I think it's you know, economists I've seen are, are predicting and were predicting this before even the Melbourne possibility of a lockdown. With the Greater Sydney lockdown, they've been saying that we might have a negative quarter of economic growth. That gets us halfway to a recession again. Um, whether we get the other halfway or not is, in a sense, just whether it's a technical recession. The point is, it's a real handbrake on the economy. And what does that do? I mean, people, for example, in Sydney have been buying up hard in the housing sector. Does that take a tumble? as a result of what we're, what we're witnessing. Uh, what does it mean for jobs? Yes, there's assistance packages coming, but when the first wave happened, we saw all those lines outside Centrelink. We're in a second wave. If it does go anywhere near as long as what some people that you mentioned, Hugh, are forecasting, well, then you've got to ask the question whether the assistant packages that are getting thrown at lockdowns will be enough. And then also, how do we go at affording them? even if they are enough, particularly if lockdowns become broader. It's become a race. There's no doubt about that, a race to get us fully vaccinated. But we need those Pfizer million a week to start coming in uh, from next week. It's also different than it was last year because uh, 
I think the packages that we're getting now look more like drought relief packages in mm. the sense that JobKeeper and those kind of uh, cash flow assistance that was coming last year, they were basically you know, throwing money in the air and accepting that some will fall on the wrong ground, you know, Harvey Norman and so on, uh, but that enough of it will go through to do a lot of good, but very expensive for the public uh, purse and for the state of the nation's books. That was last year. They're trying to avoid that now. And so they've got a much more complex bureaucratic process to deliver assistance. We also have this confusion that goes about what is an essential worker. And already we've got cases where, you know, this is where Gladys Berejiklian's messaging has become very difficult to, to, to manage because she's repeatedly asked what's an essential worker. And she says, well, that's up basically for workers to decide. You've then got uh, workers deciding they're not essential. So they'll stay at home. Then employers saying, well, mm. don't expect to get paid. Um, that tension that exists, you know, I'm also enormously sympathetic towards small business struggling their way through this often with their cash reserves now pretty thin after the events of the last year. And this is where I just sense that if this goes on for more than a couple of weeks, which, you know, most are predicting it will do, although there's only a two week extension of the lockdown so far, then we're going to see something happen, which we went to such lengths to avoid last year. And that was small businesses shutting their doors, the unemployment rate ticking back up again. Is that your sense of the risks that we currently face? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think that there are all those risks are very real and present at the moment. Uh, but I, I do think that the vaccine rollout will eventually take that over uh, and it, it, we will be, if you like, insulated enough from the health concerns that require lockdowns such that we can come out of lockdowns. But there is that you know, it's, it's the void in between, isn't it, Hugh? It's it's the next however many months that sit between not just the vaccination take-up, but then also vaccines actually kicking in because it does take a number of weeks for them to become as effective as they need to become. People often don't talk about that. So there's that side of it. But before we even get there, we've got the rest of this year, essentially, uh, as, a, as a difficult back half of the year, which could have some profound economic implications. And if that happens, then it has profound political implications too and that for me is the thing that I guess as a political scientist I find fascinating looking at Scott Morrison as he gets to choose the timing of his election he'll be very grateful for that uh, he can delay it until things look a little bit better I think he wanted to go at the end of this year but he thought he would be further into the vaccine rollout without additional waves of lockdowns to be able to, to do that now he's going to have to wait for next year and he might solve one problem by waiting till next year but as a result, create a different problem on the way through. So he might get the vaccine rollout where it needs to be, sure, but he might be coming out the other side of some very, very tough economic times in the back half of 2021. And then the consequences of that sit in the budget and they sit there ready to roll for voters to make an assessment on, and that could damage their economic credibility. It's interesting, isn't it? Because the uh, we don't talk a lot about polling numbers here. The polling numbers, as they're still broadly speaking, fifty-fifty on news poll. I think Labor's fifty-one to forty-nine. But there are definitely signs that there has been a tide going out for the Morrison government in areas where they've previously been strong. WA and Queensland, in particular, uh, and you know he's he's looking far from a sure thing. 
even compared with where we thought he might have been a few weeks ago. Would that, would that be an, a fair assessment? Oh, yeah, I think so, for sure. I mean, I, I continue to find it hard to find the seats Labor needs around the country to get to the magic number of 77. Labor is sitting on 68, but you might as well call it 69 because of the redistribution that takes away a Liberal seat in WA and gives Labor a, a notional seat in Victoria that they will win. Uh, so they're on 69. They've got to find eight seats without losing any seats. And I do find that hard when I do this at a micro seat by seat level. However, when you look right around the country, the issue tends to be that with the way that the worm has turned a little bit against Scott Morrison, if that continues to turn, then seat by seat analysis becomes irrelevant, just like it was in 2013, just like it was in 2007, just like it was in 1996. When you have changes of government, you tend to have massive nationwide swings and you can't sandbag against those in that situation. Yes, it's funny because you don't feel as if whatever's going on is a, uh, you know, like a galloping race towards the Labour, uh, an incoming Labour government, you know, not like 2000 and, you know, from when Rudd took over essentially at the end of 2006 or, or um, you know, even Whitlam, if you go back that far. For yeah. his, his first victory, you know, Hawke. Although was... ironically, because of how, how, uh, how entrenched the Conservatives were back in the day of Whitlam. It, I mean, I wasn't there to, to witness it firsthand, but having read about it, you know, the, the It's Time campaign, and it looks like there was this wave of change, and he only won by five seats, I think, in the end, against, of all people, McMahon. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it was only just time. <laughs> and I guess that's the other element which comes in, is do people start to factor in that this is a government that's been around now since 2013 uh, in various different forms? I think most people perceive it's been a whole series of different governments because of the uh, of the Abbott-Turnbull-Morrison effect. But but just the same, you, you know, it's been around now for a significant period of time. Will, will that become a factor even for a proportion of voters? Um, let's take a quick break. Uh, I've got a lot more to to test you on on uh, on vaccinations in the future, but uh, that'll be in just a moment. PBO, stay there. Welcome back. You're listening to episode 101 of The Professor and the Hack with uh, Hugh Remington. That's me and the hack. No, the professor. PBO. <laughs> I'm forgetting our roles, Peter. I, I, I feel like we can be both, can't we? Both of us can be both, Hugh. That's the way I feel. Yeah, well, you're very generous, mate. There's no way I'm going to make a prof. Um, but I'm, I'm looking at the United States numbers and I'm looking at the numbers out of Britain with a lot of interest at the moment. This is vaccination against infection rates and mm. death rates, because leave aside the current calamity that's gripping Greater Sydney, the fears that are going through Victoria with the with the New South Wales infection getting into Victoria and then trying not to have another lockdown, please God. But let's look ahead to a time when we've got vaccination rates that are up at about 60 odd percent, 60 plus percent. And this is, we start to enter phase four of Scott Morrison's timetableless four stage plan. But this is where, as he said, when it starts to feel like the flu, we'll treat it like the flu. Now, if you look at Britain and the United States, they've got vaccination rates now that are up roughly 60 or 60 plus percent fully vaccinated. Mm. The death toll, the infection rate in the United States is steepling up, by the way, 23,000, 24,000 a day. Uh, 
if it's always interesting, you need to sort of divide by 13 to get numbers, which then become somewhat analogous to the Australian circumstance, but very, very rough numbers. That's a couple of thousand infections a day. As they open up, as they feel their crisis is over and a death toll, which runs to in the UK about 10 a day and in the US 10 a day, this is adjusted to Australian numbers about 20 a day in the United States adjusted to Australian numbers. So, so I guess what I'm trying to present as a picture is right now for all that we've got problems in New South Wales in particular, we've had two, as we speak, two COVID deaths this year. Both mm. of them happened in the last couple of days this year. Now the great future that's being held out in front of us, which is where everything gets back to normal. It's just the flu involves by implication in a well-vaccinated population, a death toll with the Delta strain way higher than we'd be willing to even remotely contemplate right now, 10 to 20 a day. Now that is, that is the sunlit uplands that we're supposed to be heading towards with vaccination. And I just wonder if people have fully absorbed that the opening up of an economy with the 65% of uh, vaccination rate would involve the potential for 10 to 20 Australians dying a day. I just wonder about that. Hugh, yeah. You, you, you have absolutely hit the nail on the head. And let me tell you, there was some briefings done weeks back uh, down in Canberra, which used to be your neck of the woods, about exactly this point in terms of expectation management of what journalists and the public might think and how they might react to the almost inevitable best case scenario future, which is essentially the one that you're painting. And I wrote a column about it at the time. Uh, and it's, it's really interesting now that this seems to be setting in as a wider understanding amongst people but even then i think minimally so at the moment i don't think people are quite joining the dots yet the way that you have just then because we've had a prime minister and other political leaders state premiers for example who have talked about one death from covid is one death too many and they've sort of used that as a way to justify these lockdowns and the reason that we can't say oh well don't worry about it and slightly loosen things by being less worried about hearing about so many deaths of people who are more elderly, for example, uh, who have been hit hard by COVID. So that has been their rhetoric. But that is different to what their rhetoric is if they're saying we're going to learn to live with it like the flu because the flu kills a lot of people every year, often hundreds in this country every year. Now, if COVID becomes similar to the flu because of vaccinations getting us to where we need to, the infectious nature of it, at least in the short term, is going to see it rip through the country if we open it up and if we don't keep locking down, which we're told we can't keep doing because of the economic effects. We've talked a lot about that today. Now, if all of that happens, then yes, exactly as you point out, we are going to have to learn to live with daily reporting of thousands of new COVID infections with handfuls of deaths here and there. And relatively speaking, that's not bad. That is what the rest of the world is accepting. But you know the difference? The reason other countries can feel fine now, you see Wimbledon playing out with massive crowds, you see the United States opening right back up. The reason that countries like that can be fine about huge rates of COVID with incredibly low double-digit rates of deaths 
in, in Australian numbers terms, is because they had hundreds of thousands of deaths or tens of thousands of deaths previously from COVID when it was ripping through without vaccines. So they, they are, relatively speaking, happy to tolerate that and see it like other health issues, you know, yeah. cardiovascular disease, cancer, dare I say, uh, you know, and obviously the flu is the one that's more analogous once you get the vaccinations for COVID. We haven't moved into that mindset yet. So we are starting to be sick and tired of lockdowns. There is a closer debate now, I think, about this notion of letting it rip once the vaccination rates go up. But I don't know that we're quite anywhere near there yet in terms of tolerance of deaths. And we can partly blame our political leaders for that. Uh, maybe they did the right thing by making us very hesitant about that with how well we've done previously. But they have nonetheless, I think, ingrained in the Australian psyche a view that any death from COVID is too much at this point in time. And that's buttressing up against people getting sick of all the other implications of lockdowns, including, let's not forget, uh, the mental stress. Yes. Look, I, I think these are these are issues that are going to occupy us more and more as those vaccination levels go up. There's, uh, there's no question about that. The other thing to bear in mind, and we started off with the question of how do you predict the future, the great line from Yogi Berra, uh, the baseball identity in the United States is never make predictions, especially about the future. It's one of my absolute favorite lines of all <laughs> times. Um, but one of the things is the behavior of the virus itself. And as someone who was in Hong Kong in the aftermath of the SARS outbreak, that was initially a galloping, highly infectious, highly fatal coronavirus that emerged out of southern China, killed about 800 people uh, in fairly short order, and then disappeared. It's a really, really remarkable mm. lesson as to how these things work. Somehow or other, the virus mutated, it was unstable in some way, and became no longer a threat, no longer infectious. It just went away. It's still, they, you know, the uh, vi virologists say that it still exists. It's probably somewhere out there. It could come back and spring up again, but it went away. So what seemed like what was potentially this pandemic, which was going to spring up in 2004, just went. Now, what we found with this current virus is that the new variants that we're getting are more infectious uh, there is now increasing evidence that Delta is more transmissible to younger people, something to do with the way in which the actual structure of the way in which it, 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 it enters and affects a cell means that uh, where the alpha variant, uh, fortunately, had very low, um, strongly negative effects, death or serious injury among the young, this one is marching down that age limit. What will the virus do next? Uh, our best hope is that it does what SARS does and it just disappears. Mm. That would be lovely, uh, as indeed happened with the, with the, the flu pandemic 100 years ago. It, but at the moment, what we're seeing is variants which seem to be at each time a, a tightening of the screws against uh, <laughs> humanity. So these are other factors in there which make all that we say now could, could be in six months or a year completely irrelevant because there's some shift into a new space. Yeah, and I, I heard a, an infectious diseases expert talking about the way that the virus tends to operate and its, its primary aim is survival, uh, you know, like most species, I suppose. It's, <laughs> that's its aim. And the virus, by virtue of trying to survive, mutates. Uh, and often those mutations can perhaps, for example, make it less deadly but more infectious, like the Delta strain, because that's good for its survival. 
If it's more infectious, it keeps surviving as a virus. If it's less deadly, that actually also helps it to survive. You know, the more deadly, almost ironically, sadly, ironically, that something is, the easier it often is to contain, um, particularly if it's quickly deadly, because, you know, we saw that with Ebola, for example, uh, you know, it, coming out of Africa. So, uh, that mutation side of it is just something that the experts, not us obviously, are going to have to keep a very close eye on uh, for how humanity responds to it. But I, I get the impression this is going to be with us for a while, even if ultimately I think it'll resemble the Spanish flu and it'll it'll go. But I tell you what, I think um, I, the Spanish flu only lasted for two years because it killed so many people and, and almost killed itself out as a consequence. This is going nowhere near those death rates but I think it will have an elongation of time. Yeah. Now, uh, speaking of elongations of time, uh, there will be no further elongation of the time of uh, the Honourable Tony Smith Mm. in the Speaker's chair. There are very few politicians get to leave on their own terms. But the Honourable Speaker, tell us about him. He's been an unusual speaker in that he has uh, had an enormous, uh, Harry Jenkins a bit the same, but enormous amount of respect from both sides. Yeah, he has. And I, I think Tony Smith's an interesting character insofar as he was a, pre, a press secretary to Peter Costello. So he's one of the Costello acolytes when Peter Costello first became treasurer during those years. Nicky Saver and others were around with Costello a little bit later on, but he was as part, he was in that in that mix. He then used that to jump into a political career, which is what he always wanted. He wasn't a journalist by training. And he was sort of touted as potentially the next Peter Costello because he'd been part of the brains trust of the Costello wit out of the office. But then he actually was too cautious and too dry in a lot of his public utterances and his approach. Very cautious politician. So he did become a a parliamentary secretary under Howard. And then he fairly quickly went into the upper ranks of the shadow ministry, including the shadow cabinet in opposition, obviously in opposition, but he never really fired uh, actually. And then he was dropped altogether and didn't get anything in government when Tony Abbott came back in and he wasn't exactly in the anti-Abbott camp particularly. Um, So he was a sort of, if you like, and I I think he would probably concede this, he ended up being a bit of a failure uh, as a politician's politician, indeed, as a front bencher and minister. uh, So so let me me just remind you of one thing that I saw, which ended his career really as a a frontline politician before he found his second wind as a speaker. Mm. He was made, I think, telecommunications shadow. I remember. And he had to deliver uh, the electoral policy, heading into an election, the telecommunications thing. Telecommunications is uh, fiendishly technical and complicated, and particularly was at that time, which is at the period when uh, there was still no NBN or it was a nascent concept. Um, There were, you know, even people at home were still, you know, it's only a decade or so ago, but, but people still weren't fully across to the degree they are now the way in which digital world has totally invested every part of their lives. Um, and so he went up there to, to make this announcement. He was out of his depth as he later conceded on he was. the technical elements of it. And he started sweating. It reminded me of that movie broadcast news where, <laughs> where the really good journalist who wants to be the, the network news anchor has everything required, except that as soon as the light goes on, he just sweated profusely and that was it. And so the airhead played by William Hurt got to have all the glory of being the newsreader. And, and there was poor Tony Smith with the, his, his face looked like a waterfall of perspiration as he tried to stammer his way through this telecommunications policy. And at that moment, you looked at him and thought, oh, he's not going to last. And he did. Yeah. And, 
you, you're dead right, and that, and that that. But the thing is, he sort of he thought that he could recover from that because he still got some junior portfolio positioning, but ultimately then didn't get it when he needed it when back in government because he got dropped from the shadow cabinet after that, after the election. But he'd already been bouncing in and out of shadow cabinet before then, but that was the killer blow. I totally agree. But let's get to the good side for for Tony Smith because he's a pretty well-liked guy. He then gets his opportunity to suddenly become speaker. Of course, the prime minister doesn't pick the speaker, the party room does essentially the party room, the, the party in government. And uh, as a re- result, he takes the speakership because uh, he was always fairly popular in Liberal Party MP ranks. So he gets that and then he really does shine because he goes to that British tradition of holding the government to account uh, a number of times, quite famously, really pulling the prime minister into line, really pulling ministers into line. I don't think it was a coincidence that often that was Greg Hunt and those two have got history in Victoria. Um, but he would still hold the opposition absolutely to account as well. But he got, he managed to get respect from both sides. Tony Burke, as manager of opposition business, was glowing about his performance uh, when it was announced yesterday that he was planning to retire from politics. And look, it shouldn't be, I should. I feel like saying this, it, it shouldn't be something that we say is a great thing to have a speaker who actually shows balance. I mean, shouldn't that be the simplest bloody thing to just be able to sit in that chair and show balance? Yes, in theory, but not in practice in this country. You know, in the UK, the speaker always, almost always shows balance. They don't even get contested against in their electorate come election time by the other side of politics because there's a, a, an agreement, an un said an unwritten agreement that that's the way it goes because it helps the independence of the speaker. Um, but it's become almost nigh impossible in this country. It rarely happens. And Tony Smith uh, was somebody who decided to embrace it. And that, even though it shouldn't be something that we have to extol as a great thing, has been a great thing. because it But he was meant- coming on after Bronwyn Bishop, oh, well, who was yeah. quite possibly the worst speaker of all time, God bless her, um, <laughs> who made no pretense of her partisanship. And and where the it, it degraded uh, the status of the yeah. institution to have that. So all power to Tony Smith for restoring dignity to that office and being recognised for doing it. Just a question though: He does have one of those suburban seats in Melbourne, Casey. Mm. There's a lot of noise all the time that these are going to be taken by um, independents or by others. So far, without a great deal of success, it must be said. Do you think any part of his decision is based on the thought that he might possibly lose Casey? No, I, I don't. I think Casey now becomes an in-play seat, particularly if there is a move on. It's under 5%, so it's technically a marginal seat. Liberals have held it since 1984, which I think may have been even when it was formed, but they've certainly held it that long. Uh, so if, if not forever, certainly for a long time. It, it's been at it's been closer at different points in time. Notably at the last election, I think he only increased his majority in it by about half a percent, which relative to some of those other stylized seats wasn't a big change. That's because demographics in that seat are to some extent working against the Liberal Party. But the the loss of him as a local member, uh, coupled with those demographic shifts, it becomes a seat that but it's not the frontline seat. Labor would need to get a very good candidate to win it. I don't think his departure has anything to do with uh, worrying that he's going to lose the seat. I think there's a whole host of other things in play. And let's not forget, he has actually been in politics for 20 years. I think he came in at the 2001 election. He's on the old super scheme. He will get a generous post-parliamentary career super. And he's young enough to have a post-parliamentary career if he goes now. Uh, so, yeah, and more time with family, less travel uh, to Canberra. I think there's a lot of other factors in play. I don't think losing his seat is, is what really bothered him. 
Well, I remember his generous friendliness when I turned up in Canberra in 2009 to take over as a political editor for the 10 Network. Uh, so Tony Smith from me, uh, well played. Congratulations on being a memorable speaker and good luck in your career after. Can I add to that, Hugh, and say the same thing? He's always been a lovely bloke to me. Uh, I first met him when I was a full-time academic over in WA, but uh, we've always gotten on really well. Uh, a bloody useless source, if you're listening, Tony Smith. Yeah. <laughs> he'll he'll, he'll take that. He'll take that as a compliment, um, but oh my God, if, if, if there, is there anyone more useless as a source than Tony Smith? Uh, but as I say, he'll take that as a compliment. He's a good bloke. Yeah, never played that game. Excellent. PVO, good to talk to you as always. Likewise, you. You have been listening to a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks.